Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast. I am your host, Scott Stiller. Thanks for joining us. We have a jam-packed show for you. Tons of action this past weekend with the ARCA race at Daytona International Speedway, along with the Cup Cars qualifying for the Daytona 500. And we'll talk about the Bush Crash. I mean, the Bush Clash. We're also talking open wheel racing. NTT IndyCar Series driver Charlie Kimball joins us to talk about his new ride with the legend AJ Foyt. Charlie also talks about his start in racing and how he's pursuing his dream despite being a diabetic. First up, let's talk about Saturday's ARCA race. Michael Self, driving for Venturini Motorsports, picked up the win, his second in the event. The race marked the debut at Daytona for Haley Deegan, the 18-year-old daughter of action sports star Brian Deegan. Haley is running the full ARCA schedule in 2020 with DGR Crossley as part of a development deal with Ford. Deegan started seventh in the field and brought it home in second place. After the race, she talked about what she was looking to accomplish. My goal for this race was top three or top five was a victory to me. And so uh, having Michael, I was like, okay, last caution. First of all, I was already just like, please let it go from that last caution before that. I was like, just let it go green. Like, I'm fine with third. Third's good. <laughs> uh, but then we ended up having that caution, and I was like, oh, my God, Michael's going to take the top. I know Drew would push him behind him. And so I was like, I told my spotter on the radio, I was like, come on, like, think about all the times I've let Michael, like, go past me and stuff for the championship last year. And I was like, I'll help him, I promise, I'll push him, like, I'll let him win. <laughs> and so that pretty much helped me in the end. Uh, I was totally fine with finishing second. I wasn't going to try to do anything to Michael. It's a, it's a long season. You go have to race against these guys week in and week out. And so uh, it's best to stay on good terms with them. Deegan added that it was all a learning experience for her. I think it was constantly, there was moments where I, got, I was like, God, I shouldn't have done that. And then all of a sudden moments where I was like, okay, that's good. And so I think at the level we're at, people have to keep in mind that we're ARCA racing. We're not cup racing. We're not Xfinity racing. We're all, most of the people here are here to learn and to eventually get to that level. So you have to kind of work out the kinks at this level. And so I think I learned a lot of good takeaways from this race, but um, some things I shouldn't have done, some things that I could have tried and been more aggressive on. But I think uh, everything that I did during this race got us that second place finish. Last year in the K&N series, Deegan was not afraid to use the bumper, but learned that comes with a consequence, saying that also taught her a valuable lesson. I regret from the past like two seasons was making like uh, more enemies than I should have, more having more grudges than I should have, and that's something this season I really wanted to, especially coming to the ARCA series, a lot of new drivers, uh, I really wanted to stay away from that. I wanted to have people on my side. So when you do get in situations like where Michael is, where I'll like, we can help each other. And it gets him a victory, gets me a good finish, and we're both happy. So uh, that was really my goal. Second is a win to me this weekend. And I think winning the first race would have been a little too high of standards for the rest of the season. Everything would have been downhill. So at least we have something to work towards. <laughs> Saturday's experience was quite a bit different from her visit to Daytona for the Rolex 24. I think the biggest thing that helped was practice today, or I mean yesterday, um, being in that kind of six, seven car draft that we had and me being able to uh, run up on people, feel how the runs were, feel how our car settled. That was the biggest learning thing I had. Obviously, it was good on the simulator to get comfortable. That was It's more a comfort thing of visual, uh, your visualizations of what you see around, your perspective of everything. Uh, that helps with the simulator-wise, but I think just the practice was the biggest help for me. Ultimately, Deegan said she would have liked to have gone for the win, but she needed her teammates because she was outnumbered. I mean, if that would have got to me, it would have been a little different story. <laughs> I think we would have been a little more risky, but uh, knowing that Drew was behind me, I knew he was obviously going to help out Michael. Uh, so 
I couldn't really make any crazy moves, nor was I really going to. I was like, hey, like, just come down on the bottom, on the start, and like, I promise I'll let you win. <laughs> Despite not winning, Deegan was happy to get her season started off with a good run. Yeah, I think having a good first race, not getting any wrecks, not anything that was really negative, it's definitely going to, I feel like, keep the season upbeat. I feel like the first race kind of sets the tone for the season. And having a good first race is definitely going to help keep the ball rolling. It always motivates the guys in the shop to work hard, uh, put all their effort in, and for me to work hard. Uh, when you're all on nice, positive, high level, you kind of just bounce off each other, uh, your work ethic. And so I think it's definitely just going to help the rest of the year. One valuable resource for Deegan is her team owner, David Gilliland. He was on there during the race saying stuff that, like, stuff that I could do better, stuff that I was doing good. Uh, he said I was really, really good, doing good on the restarts, uh, which is something that I don't have a bunch of bigger track uh, restarts downs because they are a little bit faster. You are, um, the gearing's a little bit different, so you have to kind of work through those things. Another valuable resource for Deegan, her Ford Performance teammates. I've asked, been asking a lot of uh, the IMSA teammates, especially uh, Chase uh, and Austin Sendrick. Uh, they've been helping me a lot. I've just been kind of picking their brain on everything. But I think that knowing David's race before in the Cup Series, he has all the knowledge pretty much everyone else has. So it's easier to talk to David. I'm really comfortable around David. So it's easier to get information out of him and have him. And he wants to help. He really wants to help because I'm racing for him. All the advice in the world doesn't make up for valuable seat time which is really what this year is all about for her. Yeah, I think there's always room for improvement, room for learning. Um, I think it would definitely, we could have maybe changed the finish a little bit or tried something a little bit uh, more if I had Tanner with me, uh, pushing me behind, but I know he had a problem, so that kind of sucked. But uh, I think there wasn't much we could do in our situation, but I think at Talladega, uh, I'm still gonna kind of go over everything, try to learn as much as I can from this race, and I'm always gonna learn something new. Every single race I race, I learn something new. Now that Daytona is over, Deegan says it's time to focus on the next race. I think it's just get ready for the next race, kind of start over, re-baseline. Um, I think the next race is Phoenix, right? Yeah, Phoenix. And so I'm definitely going to be on the sim a lot, watching footage, uh, going over everything I need to for there. Um, I have raced at Phoenix before, so I have an idea of it in the k and car. Um, I love Phoenix, though. Phoenix is going to be a fun race. We have a new title sponsor um, for the car there. So it's definitely, I definitely want to have a good run there. One world Deegan is embracing. That's always cool having little girls come up to me and say, I want to be a race car driver one day. Those are always things that motivate you even more because you know what you're doing is right and uh, your progression and everything, all the work you're putting in, it's worth something. And especially going back to the off-road track, off-road races, um, my old car that I won the championship in, a little girl bought. So always going there, like, I don't have to help her, but either way, going to the track, I always uh, go up to her, try and give her some information. I'll even get on the radio with her. Just little things that... Uh, kind of help the sport, bring the sport to a higher level. Shifting gears now into open wheel racing where rain and cold temperatures spoiled the first day of spring training for the NTT IndyCar Series. They were down at Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas. That gave us an opportunity to catch up with a driver who's jumping into a new ride this year. Joining us on the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast is Charlie Kimball, who's going to be driving for A.J. Foyt this year in the NTT IndyCar Series. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, we appreciate you taking time out of your day. When did you first get into racing? Well, I grew up watching racing. My dad's a mechanical engineer and designed race cars. In fact, he helped design uh, winners of the Indianapolis 500 back in 1980 and 1982. So I always was exposed to it from 
the time I was born, I was watching racing, sometimes looking for my dad on TV, other times just enjoying the racing. Uh, and then when, after we'd moved from Europe back to California, where my family's from, I grew up going to Ventura Raceway, the little quarter mile dirt track out in Ventura in California, watching guys like Sleepy Trip run around on Saturday night. So that's where I, I first watched it. And then soon after that, I started racing go-karts myself, getting behind the wheel and never looked back. One of the cool things that it seems like a lot of the open wheelers get their start in carts. I know one of the local uh, races here in the area, they've started a karting series. So when you think about when you started and how things have progressed over the years, uh, how would you relate your experience in carts to your experience and how it has translated to Indy cars? Well, one of the great things about racing in go-karts was racing every weekend. I mean, three to four weekends a month, we were on the road at a go-kart track behind the wheel. And so that meant there was a lot of, and I think what, what that means now is that my race craft was honed from when I was nine years old. Um, and then as I got into cars, we weren't racing as much. Maybe we were doing more testing mileage and less race racing. And now at the top level, you do 17 events a year. And we used to do 17 events before May. Um, so that racecraft and experience means that when I get into the cockpit now, I have that solid foundation for years and years and years. And when you left karting, what was your progression after karting? Well, I spent some time racing in Formula Ford in, in an S1600, raced an S2000, and then from the F2000, uh, I graduated high school about the same time. I got accepted to Stanford University for their mechanical engineering program. Uh, my dad's an alma mater there, or an alumni, excuse me. Uh, it's his alma mater. And my friends all thought I was crazy, but I turned them down to move to Europe to go race cars. Uh, and I raced first in England in the British Formula Ford Championship. Uh, was pretty successful. Raced in British Formula 3. First American in 13 years to win a British F3 race. Raced in the Formula 3 Euro Series race. And then stepped up to the World Series by Renault. And it was mid-season, actually, in the, the World Series by Renault in 2007 that I went into a doctor's office. Uh, I came out with a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. What was that diagnosis like to you when you were told that? Well, one of the first questions I asked the doctor was if not how I was going to manage it or what tools I needed or what I needed if I could eat or whatever it was. But the first question I asked was if I'd ever drive again, if I'd ever race again. Um, and I remember the moment, it seemed like it took forever for him to answer, but it was probably only a second or two. And he looked up at me and said, I don't see any reason why not. There are incredible people doing amazing things with diabetes all over the world. You may have to change how you go about it a little bit, but it shouldn't get in the way of you living your dream. When I first met you, you were at the Diabetes Expo here in Pittsburgh. I think you were running a lights car at the time and you were getting ready to graduate to IndyCar. Is that when you started your relationship with your sponsor, Novo Nordisk? In fact, uh, Novo Nordisk and the Race with Insulin program and I uh, have been together now. This will be our 12th season together. So we raced for, you know, they worked with me and I worked with them for the two years in Indy Light. 
um, in 2009, 2010. Then they stepped up with me to the IndyCar Series when I made history as the first licensed driver with diabetes to race in the Indy 500. Uh, And they've been a part of my program ever since. Uh, As you said, part of that Race with Insulin program is going to diabetes conferences and and speaking on behalf of the diabetes community. Um, And part of it is representing the community and what we're able to overcome and be successful and do while we chase our passions, like driving an IndyCar. What's interesting about that is uh, you touched on one of the things when you talked to the doctor when you got the diagnosis. Uh, You didn't ask him about diet or anything like that first. You first asked if you could continue racing. So obviously, you know, the diagnosis of someone getting diabetes, there's, uh, I think sometimes there, for lack of a better word, there's a, a bit of a stigma attached to it that it's you're attaching a ball and chain to your life and it's not really the case because we see people like yourself Connor Daly's another one who has uh, diabetes who races in IndyCar and you guys are out there showing the world that it doesn't have to change your life agreed there's a whole community of athletes and performers uh, a former prima ballerina in the New York Ballet a gentleman who has climbed the highest peak on every continent and hiked to the North and the South Pole. Chris Freeman, who's an Olympic cross-country skier who is continuing to compete in in Ironman triathlons with type 1 diabetes. I mean, there are so many people doing incredible things uh, physically within racing. And so getting that diagnosis is scary. I, I, and there are moments where, for sure, I would love to be able to give this back and not have diabetes. But I'm very honest in that I think I am a better athlete because of my diabetes rather than despite it. I listen to my body more. I pay more attention. I manage my insulin doses, my nutrition, my hydration. Uh, I train more focused. Um, I understand my body better than I ever would have without that diagnosis. Would that be the first piece of advice that you would give to a young athlete, like a grade school athlete or a high school athlete who gets that same type of news that you did? What, what advice would you give them? Well, I think the biggest piece of advice is that to become, especially a young person, to instill in them that to become a professional athlete, it takes a, a great work ethic, a lot of discipline. And if you apply that same discipline and work ethic to your, from your chosen sport to your diabetes management and, and have a great team around you, I, I will be the first to admit that diabetes is a team sport. Um, it takes a great healthcare team. It takes a great family support team to be successful. Uh, and if you do that, have that team and figure out how to make your diabetes work with you, there's very little in the world you can't do. You're truly an inspiration to everybody out there. And uh, I remember talking with you here at the Diabetes Expo here in Pittsburgh, and the place was packed. Uh, and that was, I think it was obviously over a decade ago. And it continues. We have to keep continuing to get the word out to people to get regular physicals, get checked, because being proactive with your health care is so important in this day and age. I 100% agree, and and I think that's so true, not just for diabetes, but for a lot of health challenges. Um, You know, losing 
or having John Andretti lose his battle with cancer last week and, and been laid to rest yesterday, the for me, his campaign was was so selfless because he was encouraging people to get checked when they needed to, and and I think that translates to so many health things. If if you as as an individual, as an athlete, as a person, are your own health advocate, if you're proactive in dealing with staying healthy and managing your health, then you're more likely to be healthier longer. And the, the diabetes community is growing. And one of the other things is that the tools within the diabetes community are growing. And I wear a continuous glucose monitor, the, the Dexcom G6, that the sensor is on my body for 10 days. And I don't have to do a traditional finger stick to check my blood sugar. Um, that science, the, the science of the insulin, uh, has been have evolved, you know, since I started with Novo Nordisk, and being able to to keep learning about those and keep evolving my management has meant that I'm able to keep doing what I want in life. That's so key about how and and it's crazy how the medical industry almost parallels the racing industry. They go at the speed of sound, it seems like, in advancements. Indeed. And I think this year, getting back to the racing side of things, signing with, with AJ Foyt Racing is, is really special. We talk about the speed of sound in, in medical development. I think AJ Foyt, as a man, would love to see us racing with the speed of sound. Uh, in 2020, no I spent some time at the race shop this week, and I kind of had to pinch myself because there are photos of all four of his Indy 500 wins on the wall, and all the four of the the pace cars in the the race shop in the lobby. And then you know AJ himself walks up and just start chatting about engineering and the cars. And I mean AJ is is a legend and a titan of the sport. I mean, he is a cornerstone of what the Indianapolis 500 and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is. And not only the fact that I get to race for him and, and try and be successful in a car that carries his name, but the fact that in the race shop, I get the chance to converse with him is extremely special for me as a driver. I was going to ask you, how excited are you to get back to the full season? The last couple of years, you've run a partial season. You're going to be in the four car this year for the entire season. So that has to, you know, from a mental standpoint and from a technical standpoint, be a a bit of a relief, but also be so motivating. It is. Um, We worked really hard with our partners with Noah Nordisk and a couple other partners that announcements are forthcoming to put this program together and, and Larry has been Larry Ford's been great to work with AJ as well. I think they, AJ and Larry have not been super happy with the, the results of the last couple of years. And so for me to be able to, to get in and try and lend my experience to um, getting as much out of the car and the team, I mean, they're, they're great talents all throughout the team and, being able to try and maximize that and being teammates with, with Tony Kanaan again for the five ovals is, is great. He and I, I really enjoyed my time being his teammate, working with him at Chip Ganassi Racing. And so being able to replicate that environment again at AJ Foyt Racing, I think will be a lot of fun. I think that's key. You've always been a 
technical driver. And when I talk to a couple of the guys over the years that have worked with you, they have always mentioned that you're a very technically proficient driver and you kind of need all of those things in this day and age in IndyCar to get the car up towards the front of the field because we're talking tenths and hundredths of a second or the difference between being in the teens and being in the top ten. I agree. And one of the things that when we announced this program, Larry was talking about what it was going to take to get back to where they want. And he said, you know, we're just on the backside of those two tenths. You know, we're not looking for seconds at a time. We're looking to just fill in the corners of the foundation. Um, and that that's such an indication of how competitive the NTT IndyCar series is. And you're, you're talking tenths and hundreds of a second to make a big difference. And yet the the rest of the racing world works in seconds. And, and we're talking the difference between the top 10 and the back of the pack being 210. It's incredible the racing that that has been uh, out in the IndyCar series with this DW12 and then with the updated aero kit. I was wondering how excited you are to be getting into the car this week because obviously one of the changes at Coda is going to be uh, all the cars are going to be outfitted with the aero screen. So it's going to be for a lot of drivers their first opportunity to hop in and, and experience that. And, you know, it's it's funny, you hear the IndyCar purists, you know, it's not an open wheel thing. Uh, I take the view of it's just another advancement, another engineering advancement. And if there's anything we can do to make the driver safer, I'm 120% for it. And as a driver that uh, is strapping into that car and, and hurtling around racetracks at 230 miles an hour, I agree with you. I think the first point about the aero screen, and I've been pretty adamant from day one about it is that if it's safer then it needs to be on the car we will figure out the rest we will figure out the cooling we will figure out the visual we will figure out all of the things that we need to make it work and at the end of the day it's still an open wheel single seater race car still an open cockpit you still climb in and out through the top you don't open a door and you look back at I mean, I was looking, I spent a lot of time at the race shop looking at AJ Foyt's cars from Eras Bygone, and they ran big windscreens as well. And, you know, no one's really talking about that. And so I think change is always, always takes a little time to get used to. And I think that's understandable. And at the same time, I'm excited to drive it and see what it sounds like, see what it feels like. Uh, it will be, there will be different sensations in the cockpit without having that airflow coming right into the helmet. I think you touched on something very interesting. I mean, you can walk through the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum and you'll see those cars with those windscreens on it. And and I remember years ago when the Viceroy car would come down the track with the goofy wings that were on that thing, everybody was like, what in the world's that? It's just going to take, I think, some time for people to get used to how it looks. And really, when you walk up to the car from the side of it, it looks like a fighter jet. I agree with the the visual on the side, the visual front on. Um, and, and the nice thing is that that aero screen around the top gives a little more opportunity for pops of color. So the fans in the stands will be able to pick out their favorite drivers based on the color of the car around that top edge of the aero screen. 
just a little bit easier. Um, and at the end of the day, if, if we can improve the safety for the drivers and improve the opportunity for the fans to come and root for their favorite car, it's a win-win. What are you looking forward to when you get in the car at Coda as far as are both cars going to be down there? And what's kind of the AJ Foyt racing game plan? Am I allowed to say everything getting in the car? I'm, I'm looking forward to all of it, frankly. Good um, it, 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 it's been a long time since Laguna was the last time. WeatherTech Raceway was the last time I was in the car and uh, driving. So it feels like a long time ago. So I'm looking forward to shaking the cobwebs off and getting up to speed, figuring out the language and the dialogue between myself and my engineer, Mike. Um, working with Sebastian Bourdais and Dalton Kellett in the car. I know Tony's going to be down there. TK is going to be down there uh, doing some announcing on the streaming for the open test. So talking to him about what he felt in the car last year, and, and I'm sure he will be working with us to try and uh, get us further forward. So there's, there's a lot new, but I think the more methodical, we are in our approach, the better it will serve us when we get back, not only to Coda for the race, but when we get to St. Pete to open the season. I'm excited about St. Pete. St. Pete is just north of where the Pittsburgh Pirates do their spring training, so there's going to be a lot of uh, area Western Pennsylvania fans down there, so I'm trying to get them to maybe take a day, drive north from Bradenton up to St. Pete. So put on your best salesman hat, and why should someone come up to St. Pete or the next closest racetrack to Pittsburgh is Mid-Ohio? Why should somebody come and check out an NTT IndyCar Series race? Well, I think for St. Pete, at least for me, it always feels like the first day of school. The drivers, the teams, mechanics, all of the associated support staff, we're all excited. We're coming out of the doldrums of winter, coming into the sunshine in St. Pete. The energy within the town is fantastic. It's a great city to start with. And then you put the energy of a street race in the middle of downtown, and it is a lot of fun. Um, there are a lot of great restaurants and things to do if you're not at the racetrack. But the racetrack itself has lend, lent itself to incredible racing over the last few years. And, and I don't think this year will be any different. Um, and, and you mentioned Mid-Ohio. I'm partial to Mid-Ohio. I won my first IndyCar race there back in 2013. Um, and look forward to, to coming back to Mid-Ohio after that Olympic break and hopefully repeating that 2013 success. I know a lot of the uh, Western Pennsylvania race fans remember you from your association with Chip and all the years you ran one of Chip's cars. So I know they're excited to get you back into the series full-time. Before I let you go, I want to touch on there's a lot of optimism surrounding the series and the Speedway itself after the sale from the Holman George family to Roger Penske. So I wanted to get your thoughts on Roger taking over and the future of not only the series, but the Speedway. I think if you were to draw the ideal person to purchase and steward the Speedway and the 500 from the great work that the Holman George family has done for decades, I think you would pretty much describe Roger Penske and the Penske Corporation. A successful businessman who has a passion and deep love for the racetrack, the event, the series, and someone who is willing and excited to invest in that facility, that event, that series, in a way to do the job right. I don't think anyone would argue with you 
if you said that Penske and the Penske race team, Penske Corp, Penske organization as a whole, one of the things they do top to bottom is they do the job right. Um, and I think that will translate really well when it comes to running the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the Indy 500, the Brickyard 400, the IndyCar Series, IMS Productions, all of that package. I think in the short term, you'll see small incremental gains with big impacts for the fan experience, for us as teams and drivers. And long term, I think the sky is the limit. You touched on the Speedway. The Speedway, obviously, very near and dear to AJ's heart. You've always run well at the Speedway. So how excited are you to be teaming up with AJ and Chevrolet and heading to the Speedway this May? Uh, it's it's kind of off the charts, really. Uh, I drove past the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, headed to the AJ Foyt shop uh, in, in Speedway, Indiana, and uh, one of the, their second shop up here. And I just thought how incredible and exciting it is for me as a driver to be teamed with AJ Foyt and get to race at a track where he was the first four-time winner. I think he qualified for the race in like five different decades. I mean, it, it's spectacular. And talking to him, uh, talking to Jack that's been with him for 50 years, those guys remember what it takes to win, what it takes to be fast, what it takes to be competitive, what mistakes they made as engineers, as drivers, as mechanics that I can learn from and, and be even better there. Um, it's, a, it's a great opportunity, and, and being in Garage A1 with AJ is, uh, is going to add something more to the month of May for sure. Well, we're excited that you're back in the series full-time. We appreciate you taking time out to join us this morning. I know you're excited to jump in the car next week. We will have the live stream up at IndyCar.com to see how everybody's doing, and we hope to catch up with you in St. Pete and later on down the road. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Team Penske's Will Power turned the fastest lap on Wednesday during IndyCar's testing at Circuit of the Americas. Kimball and teammate Sebastian Bourdais were 23rd and 24th on the speed charts. Don't read too much into testing times, to be honest with you. They don't mean a whole lot. We're a month away from the Grand Prix of St. Petersburg. For ticket information, visit gpstpete.com. This past Sunday at Daytona, teams made single-car qualifying runs with Ricky Stenhouse Jr. winning the pole position for the Daytona 500, driving a JTG Doherty Racing Chevrolet. He turned a fast lap of 194.582 miles per hour. Hendrick Motorsports' Alex Bowman is on the outside of the front row with a speed of 194.363 miles per hour. Hendrick-powered cars posted the four fastest laps, something that was not lost on the pole sitter Stenhouse. Something that you don't really think about when, you know, Mr. Hendrick shows up in victory lane knowing that, you know, we're, we're running his engine package, you know, going to the engine shop and, and seeing all the guys a couple weeks ago and uh, just saying hey to him, you know, it's something different that I haven't driven. So to keep the streak alive of, of the the Chevys and, and Hendrick engines on the uh, on the pole and on the front row is uh, is pretty cool because I know everybody at JTG Doherty Racing has, has worked really hard this off season, and um, you know I think that's what makes it special to me is knowing that uh, you know those guys put in the effort, they put in the work. Uh, not only just the work, but they knew exactly what to do to, to make our cars fast. And, um, you know, it's 
it's a good good way to start uh, our new relationship uh, with JTG. Stenhouse says bringing crew chief Brian Patty over to JTG has been a key. There's a handful of us that feel like we have something to prove, um, you know, and, and two of those are uh, in my corner with me uh, at JTG Doherty Racing with, with Mike and Brian. And, um, you know, I know that I feel like I can still get the job done, you know, behind the wheel and, and win races like we did uh, in the Xfinity Series. And, um, you know, I know Brian um, believes in, you know, what the JTG Doherty um, you know, the resources that they have at the race shop, uh, the, the engines, the Chevys. I mean, he just believes in, in what they, uh, what they have and, um, and feel really confident that we're going to be able to show what we both can do, um, together. And, and I'm excited to continue that relationship. That was a huge move for me going over there, bringing people that I'm familiar with that have always been in my corner and, you know, to go to, a whole brand new place. Um, I think I'd have been lost, uh, not having them there. Um, but to see the way they mesh with, you know, Jody and Tad and, and Ernie, the way they've built that place up, uh, they, they smooth transition right in and, you know, just being at the shop with, with all the new people, uh, that, that, you know, that the company has and, um, it's been a, a good off season, but we definitely have something to prove. And, you know, I know that this is Daytona 500 qualifying, um, you know, it's it's one lap, it's one weekend, but uh, I know that they're putting the same effort into our Las Vegas car that we're that we're taking to Las Vegas as what they've been putting into our 500 cars. So, I uh, I think this is just signs of things to come of of our speed that we're going to have with our 47 team. Stenhouse also mentioned that spending the off season dirt racing kept his skills sharp and really helped his confidence. Yeah, I definitely ran, you know, more uh, midget races this off season than than I have in the past few years, and um, and I'm glad I did that. Just staying in the seat, uh, you know, running more dirt races in a row, got got more confidence built up. We were fast at, at quite a few of those races. Stenhouse is confident that Patty and the JTG team will put a strong car under him for the Daytona 500. You know, I've noticed over the years of speedway racing that, you know, when you have a fast car, um, obviously you get Sometimes that you get more people to work with you. Sometimes you don't. But, um, you know, I noticed we qualified on the pole at Talladega. Uh, car was really fast. And, um, you know, I felt like it was easier for me to make moves, uh, knowing that I felt like I had enough speed to, you know, pull out a line and get the job done. So, um, you know, that uh, that to me is, is all that really matters is I know what our car is capable of speed-wise, and, and that helps me make moves. Stenhouse says using Thursday night's duels and final practice will be about figuring out what's important for Sunday's race day setup. For me, in the um, the little drafting that I did on um, Saturday's practice, you know, the car definitely drives a little bit different. Um, I feel like my moves are going to have to be a little bit more calculated, at least for the duels. Um, I know, Brian, we've already talked about a, a few things that, that we need to adjust on our race car, you know, for Sunday. I feel like your car on Sunday needs to be a lot different than you qualify and, and run your duel with. And so we're going to, you know, continue to look at that. I feel like I want to learn a lot in Thursday in the duel to try and figure out, you know, what all we need um, come Sunday. Uh, because in those practice sessions on Friday and Saturday, you end up getting a little bit of a draft, but you don't get, you know, a race draft like you do on Thursday. So 
we uh gonna just take notes and you know we got um you know a full week to come up with what we need for uh sunday during the during the 500 but uh, definitely gonna have to be a little bit more calculated uh when your car is a little bit looser uh but when brian gets it dialed in for me i'll be able to uh be aggressive again alex bowman says he knows he has a good car and the outside front row is a good start to speed weeks for him and the 88 team everybody at hms puts so much effort into these speedway cars and as a race car driver there's not much you can do to make them go faster but you can sure screw them up so at least i didn't do that and i'm um, just proud of all the guys back at the shop engine shop chassis shop fab shop um you know we brought four really good race cars obviously hendrick engines and the, the 47 as well so um, proud of all those guys. I, I think we're going to have a great race car in the race. Our clash car has been driving really well as well. So um, just excited to be back here with, with the new Camaro body. I think that's, um, that's going to be really great for us. And Valvoline car looks really cool. So uh, it, it's been a good weekend so far. Bowman thought he had a shot at the pole until he came off of turn two. Getting off of turn two, um, there's a flag at the end of the, the back straightaway that you can see and kind of see where the wind is at and what it's doing. And the car kind of fell on its face off of turn two, um, and you could see the flag was pointed straight at me. So I, I knew we had a really big headwind. So, um, you know, wasn't really aware of, of where the winds were um, for all the other guys. So I was a little worried about that. But uh, obviously didn't hurt us too bad. Would have liked to be a little better, but um, still pretty good. The duels on Thursday will, for some teams, be their first opportunity to get the new Chevy Camaro out in race conditions. Bowman says he feels some differences with the new car. We maybe had a little glimpse of, of the differences in, in clash practice. Uh, we drafted a little bit, not a ton, but but definitely did a little bit. So um, we'll just have to wait and see. I think how, how the, the clash goes will be a good indication. Um, and then obviously duels and 500 practice and all that. But... Um, I think it looks great. It's, it's been really great on track so far. Um, we've, we've had it on the racetrack once, and it, it qualified one, two, three, four. So um, obviously it's working pretty good so far. After Sunday's qualifying took place, the Bush crash, I mean the Bush clash, took place. 18 cars were entered in the race, and only six finished, and most of them had damage. Joe Gibbs Racing's Eric Jones took the victory. Jones's number 20 Sport Clips Toyota Camry was involved in three separate incidents, one which caved in the whole grill and nose of the car. Team owner Joe Gibbs says he doesn't recall anything quite like that race. Well, certainly Daytona is a special place, and it holds a special place for us because when we first got in racing our first year, we didn't win anything, and we're kind of second-guessing. Do we belong here? Is this too big for us? And we won that Daytona 593, and I think that kind of got our race team started. So it was a special place. But then we went like 20-something years without winning it. And so it, it, it is a special place for us. Uh, the thing I was going to say today, it was a classic example. Uh, that was one of the wildest things I've ever been in, racing. And it was a classic example of two crew chiefs and two drivers that really refused to quit. Denny, after that, you know, the bad wreck there for him the last time, they said, should we go to the garage? And both of them, Denny said, no, keep working on it. And Chris said, yeah, okay. And then uh, <laughs> Eric on this side with Chris, it really was an example of just not quitting. 
because everything in the world happened. I said, I don't know what the fans will say about that, but I think they're going to sure talk about it because it was wild. And uh, that, that was something that was just a rare experience. That may never happen again. Jones, for his part, says he just wanted to get the car to the finish line and describe that last lap. You know, when the 42 and I kind of started swapping back and forth there coming to the white, I was like, man, we're, we're probably out of it now. I was so slow by myself with all the damage. Um, I just started looking for the 11. I knew he was out there, and I figured uh, Rick, had, my spotter, had told me he would help us out. So I'm just kind of looking for him, and he started getting ahead of steam, and he started pushing me, and I'm like, I don't know if we're going to get going fast enough to even catch him um, because we were both pretty damaged, and we started – getting a little momentum I started getting a little sniff of air off those guys in front of me and um we got a good run off of two and I'm like oh we're, we're gonna get there we just gotta anticipate the block and those guys were so focused on each other that they we started passing them and I'm like oh, okay and we just kept going so um I was like hell yeah I mean we're gonna win the race so it was really cool it was it was a strange race obviously uh, from a lot of aspects craziest race I've ever been in let alone one and definitely the most damaged car I've won with. But, you know, just when he started pushing, I had it to the floor. That's as much as my car had, you know, with all the damage. And I was just hoping we could get enough momentum to at least have a shot to get back to the front. Afterwards, Jones talked about what the win means to him and his team. I don't know if it's the biggest win, but definitely the the one of the coolest. I mean, just from an aspect that me and my friends will laugh about this one for a long time, you know, looking back at it and, and <laughs> wondering how we won. Um, you know, we got in that first wreck, and I was like, well, well, we'll keep going. We don't have too much damage. And we got in the second wreck. I was like, all right, well, let's keep going. I think we can fix it again. We got in the third wreck, and I was like, man, it's pretty tore up. And Rick's or Chris said, well, let's bring it in. We'll look at it. And they thought they could patch it back up. And I went back out, and I said, yeah, I can still make laps. So, um, you know, there was no reason for us. As long as the thing could keep making left turns, and had power, you know, we were going to keep going. I mean, this race just nothing to lose, right? You know, we don't have to. There was only five, six cars out there, so I thought, man, if I'm in it, I got a shot. Everybody's got damage, so um, just pushing to the end and just hoping to still be in it and hoping people would keep taking each other out and eliminating each other and we, we would have a shot, which, you know, we did and it worked out. Jones said he didn't really know how bad the car was damaged until he got out of the car in victory lane. I knew it was pretty tore up. I mean, I could see the hood, but I didn't know the nose was was so busted in until I saw it. Uh, we took the we recreated the the Terry Labonte picture with our crew, so I'm excited to see how that turned out. But it was it was pretty busted up. I've never I've won with some beat up cars, you know, racing short tracks, but they they never quite looked like that. So it was uh, it's one I will always remember. The duels take place Thursday night with the first race starting at 7 p.m. and the second duel starting at 8.45. On Friday, the Xfinity Series will have two practice sessions and the Cup Series will have one practice session and the Gander RV and Outdoors Truck Series race will take place Friday night at 7.30. Saturday, the Xfinity Series will qualify followed by the Cup Series final practice and then the Xfinity Series race. Then on Sunday... It's the Super Bowl of stock car racing with the green flag dropping on the Daytona 500 at 2.30 Eastern time. That'll do it for this week's Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast. 
Extra special thanks goes out to AJ Foyt Racing's Charlie Kimball for joining us. Look for a special NASCAR edition of the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast this weekend. We're going to have Chip Ganassi Racing's Kyle Larson and Kurt Busch as our guests. Until then, don't forget to check out PittsburghRacingNow.com every day for the latest in the world of racing. I'm Scott Stiller. Thanks for joining us.